Funk, Arizona Wine Podcast by Cody Vladimir Burkett. Ladies and gentlemen, this is Cody, the Arizona Wine Monk. I'm here visiting Del Rio Springs Vineyards, and we're talking about the Phoenix, which is a new release. It's the first and only Phoenix grown and made in Arizona. Why don't you guys introduce yourselves? Hi, I'm Rick Sklazine. And Mary Sklazine. So what brought you guys to Chino? Specifically for wine production. Um, the Chino area in this basin is cool enough to grow the kind of grapes that we intended to grow when we retired, which was, I retired from Sonoma County, so Pinot Noir was my favorite red, and I liked the Chardonnays and the Sauvignon Blancs off of Napa Valley, too. So when we came here, the children were in Phoenix, so they wanted us to retire in Arizona. So we did a lot of searching for the microclimates that would be cool enough to grow the grapes we were wanting to grow and the Chino Valley was the one that fell out the best, that had the best soils, the best we get the cool air coming from the Grand Canyon through the what they call the Ash Fork Gap and that allows that cool air to build here in this valley and gives us the cool nights moderating temperatures so it's a great location for the cool climate grapes. Which is exactly then why you didn't go with Wilcox, because Wilcox is bigger, warmer climate, even though the land is more. <laughs> yeah, they've got a lot of area, uh, but it's hard to get high enough to, to get the kind of microclimate it would take. Uh, this is good, because everyone's tried experimenting with Pinot Noir and Chardonnay down there, and it's been largely because of that, everyone's concluded that, oh, these grapes are not good for Arizona. Why are we doing them here? We're going to tear these out and put them up here, or put them, or not grow them anywhere, so to speak. But that being said, it's just, it's always struck me as interesting growing up, because I would read about these vineyard landscapes and the climates, and it's like, why was no one growing in Chino? And now you've started, although Granite Mountain or... Granite Creek? Granite Creek, rather, has been there for ever Several ever. years. It was originally a Concord vineyard when they were doing juice grapes, pressing it for juice, and then they evolved over into a wine vineyard now. Which is good because I don't like Concord. Yeah, it's, <laughs> it's not a wine grape, that's for sure. And the, the neat thing about us now is we've just, this year, we have some people over at the base of the Black Butte that have, have a five-acre vineyard they put in this year. Uh, with the Italian, the northern Italian uh, grapes. Yeah, I saw that on Facebook. Uh, the Terrell de Go, Free Luano, and a few others. Rebella Gola, um, and what was, oh, the Shreve. So th again, these are, well, Terrell de Go is, there's some Terrell de Go on House Mountain in the Verde Valley, but uh, that's about it, as far as I'm aware for the state. So we just have it, it likes a cool climate. That's a northern, up along the base of the Alps in northern Italy, where they grow the Terrell de Go. So it's, it should do good here at this higher elevation. So what all do you have planted here at Del Rio Springs other than the Pinot Noir and the Phoenix? Uh, we have, in addition to those two, we have Carmenere and we have a small patch of Vignole in our experimental vineyard that we're, we've got several cool climate and kind of mid-climate grapes that we're trying here. See how they do with the climate, see how they handle the spring frosts and stuff. Uh, you need a lot of late budding grapes for here because we have frosts just prior to Mother's Day, we can still have frost here. Yeah, there was, there was a lot of terror down in Sonoida this year. There was a huge frost that hit, and a couple of vineyards definitely got hit pretty hard from yeah. what I heard. Yeah, it was, we get frost. Well, matter of fact, right now, even today, we had 38 degrees was our overnight low, so we're just above freezing. So the, the beauty of it is that the Phoenix and the Carmenere are both late budding as well as the Vignoles. So they're just basically scathed the frost because they don't come out until about Mother's Day is when they start blooming. We've got our shoots now are only about two or three nodes high on those grapes where the Pinot is a lot taller. But the beauty of the Pinot for us is we do the long, long winter pruning and then we come in and cut back to the two buds once the, the frost period is over with. So... That's, that's how we do Pinot here. You get, the, the key here is to get through that spring frost. Everything else usually takes care of itself. So what do you have in your little experimental plot? We've got, uh, <laughs> I've got a few Gewitztraminer we're trying. We've got some Grunewald liner, some Pinot Blanc. I have some uh, Kerner, uh, not Kerner, Kernling, which is a bud sport off of the Kerner. It's a pink grape. Oh. Yeah, really interesting grape uh, that we've planted. 
So we're just Chardonnay. seeing Chardonnay. Yeah, we yeah we have a lot of people wanting a Chardonnay because we're so cool up here. They say, why aren't you growing Chardonnay along with the Pinot? So we've got some Chardonnay. We're trying a 76 and a 95 clone. Any Pinot Meunier? Uh, no. Again, it comes out pretty early for the, for the weather. I'm not sure if we can get through that frost period with the, the Pinot Meunier. But we thought about it because we're, you know, also we've had a lot of people wanting us to do a, like a, a Blanc de Noir uh, champagne. And the Muir would be great for that, you know, to give us a lot of that fresh fruit and strawberries that you would get from it. So how many acres do you have right now? Uh, presently we have six acres and we have three and three quarters that are under, under vines. And next year we plan to plant the other part out down our hillside. That's why we're trying the Chardonnay because we have ideal soils. We have that lighter clay soil that we have the red soil, the redder clay with the volcanic ash up here on the bench. But as it goes down that hillside, it gives way to that a lighter grayer clay with more limestone in it. And so, and it's east facing slopes also, which is perfect for the Chardonnay. So. That's, we're saving that spot, and if the Chardonnay works, the test vines, why that'll be where we'll put our Chardonnay. You're planning on doing that whole hillside Chardonnay then? Yes, okay. yeah, the whole cool. hillside clear down to the base. Starting, you started off in Sonoma County then for wines, or? Um, well, no, actually I had a winery in Iowa <laughs> many years ago that we produced mostly hybrids, and the vinifera was Chardonnay brought in. I had Riesling and some Sauvignon Blanc that we'd bring in from California and Oregon. And then job, I had to choose between the winery and the job, so yeah. I, I, at that time, back in 84, it, it was the job that won out. So I went ahead and was public works director trying to work my way every time I'd said I'm just working my way west to the wine country. And sure enough, we ended up in Petaluma. I was public works director there, retired from there. So we had ample time to really tour that wine country. We went to classes on growing grapes and establishing a vineyard at the Santa Rosa Junior College offered some viticulture and grape growing classes. So we attended those before we retired. So between having the information on winemaking and then the information on growing grapes from Santa Rosa Junior College, well, we felt confident to go ahead and put a vineyard in and that's what we're doing here. Nice. Hey, it looks beautiful, by the way. I was, took a peek out there after I parked, and it looks like everything's coming in beautifully yeah, right now. Yeah, we've got good, and we've got uh, what we call high-density planting. What that allows us to uh, have self-regulating vines more so we don't end up a lot of cluster thinning, and at the vines, we'll just put up enough to get the kind of fruit concentrations and the yields that we're looking for, especially in the Pinot. And we have the high high cordon wire, which is actually we're bringing the Pinot up. We first started at 32 inches, but we found out that it's 32 is a little low for harvesting. Yeah. <laughs> and so they helped said, this is, is there any way you can get these higher? So we're switching them over to a 39 inch wire now for the cordon. And the Carmenere and the Phoenix are both on 40 inch. So what are the biggest challenges you found to growing out here in Chino, other um, than that frost? That's probably been the biggest challenge because we have very low humidities and wind is kind of also, but most of these vines that we're growing are pretty tolerant to the wind. Some vines, will the shoots will snap in the wind, they're a little more brittle. But with the Pinot and the Carmen Yarn de Phoenix, we, they, they held up well in the wind that we have here. But primarily because of the low humidity, we love that because Again, it's, it, it saves us from the deal, the mildews, the powder. We don't even see powder here in what downy mildew we see. Usually we get enough sunshine and the wind that we don't have. We can do a, what I call an organic-based sustainable viticulture here then. Is the goal then in the long run to do also um, organic-based winemaking as well? Well, we're looking at that. We've, we're, we've thought about it. It's kind of difficult, especially if you... Uh, most of that includes low or no sulfurs in there to help with the oxidation and things of that nature. So it's something we'd have to make sure we were set up to handle uh, organic or sustainable stuff where we would either be low or no sulfurs. That's the, the difficult part for most winemaking, especially whites. Yeah, It's hard to hold with no sulfurs just naturally. You can do it somewhat with high alcohol, but and dark glass, but there's only so much you can do there if you don't have sulfur to keep the oxidation away, hold it off for a while. Yeah, the minute it, the, if your storage facility goes down, your wine is You're right. doomed within the hour. sustainable, yeah, to that. 
which is which is unfortunate because I've had great organic wines, but I've also taken bottles home of those great organic wines from from wineries, only to find that they are now not good anymore because right. it was the just temperature changed between the winery and then driving. You know, great amount. This happens. This is why I only drink when I'm down in the vineyard because I know if I go up and over the mountain with it, it's I, yeah, it's not going to be as good as it was. Yeah, it's it's real susceptible to the to the environment. Let's say. How has your influence in Iowa and in California translated to here in a unique growing condition? Uh, it's, it's given us a lot of information uh, from the vineyard standpoint. Uh, we got a lot of good tips from California on how to set out a vineyard, how, how to plant the vineyard with the close spacings to get the self-regulation, the rootstocks that uh, give you better quality wine. Uh, rootstocks on uh, influence on the ripening period also some of the, your lower vigor the high vigor ones that they use a lot here especially in the in the Verde Valley and the Wilcox area are mostly like 1103P which is a very vigorous rootstock but it's more drought tolerant and we found out for us because of the cooler conditions up here the winters are too hard on 1103 they have a tendency to kill it at the graft joint in the first two or three years so we've switched over to the 10114 which is a real low vigor that helps slow the pinot down on ripening and the 3309 both of those can handle the cold weather and they're still semi drought tolerant for this area it's true, you don't get as much of that dry condition, or the dry conditions that you do down south up here. It's a little bit moister. Yeah, we, as you can see, most of the surrounding areas has the, the grazing grasses for the cattle ranches. So, you know, we have a, a more rain, but, but with the dry humidity, the low humidities, it, we have rain and within minutes the wind will come up and dries everything off for us. So that's what we call the ideal part of it. So what we've got here in our glasses is the new Phoenix. So I don't know anything really about this grape. It's new. How did you first hear about this? Well, while we were here, I, I, I was also a member when I was in California of the Great Breeders Association. And they have a web page that you could chat back and forth on. And there was a gentleman in Oregon that had received some of these Phoenix grape that they brought in from Germany through... England via Canada and then through Canada it migrated down to Oregon and this guy had a uh, nursery and he just happened to have a small plot of Phoenix so then it kind of intrigued me because of the name I thought well that's a no-brainer for an Arizona to come up with the Phoenix grape so I checked into it a little more and did a little reading it's a German grape cool climate grape the Phoenix was developed because of the the cold hardiness and uh, disease resistant variety and that worked real well for here we in the years the four years we've had the phoenix planted we haven't had to spray for any downy mildew it's it's basically resistant to the mildews and the rots it's an open cluster composition so it dries out well fairly thick skinned and as you can tell the wines are, are really sophisticated we, you have a lot of pear and apple nose melon um, yeah this is a super fruity nose really super fruity nose but yet, with the, the way we produced the wine, we kept it in stainless steel and on the lees for six months. So we're getting that complexity also in mouthfeel from the lees on it. You get the little creaminess in the back, in the mid-palate and the finish. You'll get that creaminess coming through. So you make your wines down in Eridus, right? Yes. So this was, this was a Hemelman vintage then? Yes. He's definitely one of the best winemakers in the state, I think. He was one of the, rated at one of the top three. But the new winemaker coming in, Mark Phillips, is, which is kind of near and dear to our heart because he's from California, the ah. Paso Robles area. So he knows a lot about Pinot, especially. That's his expertise, is Pinot. And also he has done some uh, Terrell de Go over there. There were some small batches of Terrell de Go that he had uh, fermented with, plus a lot of the white wine. So it worked real well for him to help finish off our Phoenix to give us an idea when we've had enough lease contact and how to finish it off. This is an unfinned, unfiltered. It's settled naturally. They're just a little, because of the lease contact, we do have a little wisp in the bottom, at the bottom of the punt, but most generally it's just such a nice complex nose. The delicacy of the fruit is maintained by not filtering. Filtering is something that I think in some cases is definitely overdone. It does wipe out a lot of flavor. You do lose a lot, especially the wineries that are trying to 
get close to this sterile bottling where you'll use a tighter than a 0.35 absolute, you start stripping flavor components out of it at that tight. If you get closer to where you don't strip, you're at a 0.4, 45, um, it's, it's a little iffy with the malolactic bacteria in the winery that can get in and start working on your wine. So again, it, it, it necessitates using a little sulfur then to help hold back the, the melolactics in the white wines if you don't want to. It's a balance between stripping flavor and melolactic protection. Now, speaking of malolactic fermentation, are you going to, when you get your Chardonnays, are you planning on going to put them through malolactic fermentation like most of California does? Most definitely. I'm looking at malolactic. I want a sweeter oak, though, a very light toast oak, so that I get I don't get the caramely flavors. I'll get more of the vanillin or vanillin, they, they call it, from the, from the oak barrel with a lighter toast. But retiring from California, especially Sonoma, we spent a lot of time in Napa Valley. And I've kind of got a fondness for the, not the big blockbuster, but the buttery malolactic Chardonnays with good fruit up front. Yeah. So with this style that we're anticipating would be probably 25% stainless to preserve the fruit, take the other 75 barrel ferment, full malolactic, and then blend them just before bottling so that you have a lot of upfront fruit. I like that style that we had a lot of that in Napa and even in uh, Lake County they were doing that. It was a little cooler than Napa so that gave a beautiful style of wine. You had pear and apple and peach up front, more the stone fruits up front, um, and then it was carried in the back with, in mid-palate with the oak and the butteriness from the malolactic. It, to me it was a more complete wine. That's what we're looking for here possibly. Like it's Phoenix. It's Isn't that a nice nose? It reminds me a little bit of the fruit qualities of a Riesling, mm-hmm. but it doesn't have any of the the petrol or minerality no. on the nose. Yeah, and you don't that I usually expect from yeah, and also German the, Riesling. The grapefruitiness that can be in some early Rieslings too, right after you bottle. And this was bottled just last two months four, ago, or no, four weeks ago. Yeah, a month. A month, a little over a month. Yeah. How many cases were produced? We had a whopping 23 cases. Oh wow, like almost less than a barrel pretty much. Yeah, it was just 50 some gallons is all. We actually kept it in a stainless barrel, 50 gallon stainless barrel, shaped like a barrel. This year though, we've got about twice as many vines now coming in with the third year. So we have some four year old and three year old Phoenix. So we're hoping to get in the 40 to 45 case range now with this this harvest coming up. So is there going to be another bottling of the Pinot and the Carmenera as well this year? Yes, soon, um, next oh. month we'll be doing the, the Carmenere. Ooh. It's been in, in the French oak for 10 months, so he thinks it's big enough. Uh, the new winemaker, Mark Phillips, said that he thinks it's far enough along and developed enough that we can go ahead and bottle that in June so we can release it in August, give her a couple months in the bottle and see how it's coming. We're hoping that'll be an August release. Be sure to save a bottle of that for me. I never got to try the. We will. We've got, we're, up, we're up from a high of uh, seven cases we had all told last year <laughs> to this year we got about 36. So, oh, nice. Yeah. And we put in another 250 Carmenere. Uh, so that'll get us up to probably, uh, we're thinking, 55, 60 cases. And then in the flat down there, uh, that's one of our plan A, B, C is to maybe in the lower part at the bottom of the hill where it levels off would be to put the late budding, some more Carmenere, put another thousand in there at the bottom. So Carmenere has had such a well reception here. Uh, people love the flavor. It's it's like a, a blend of Syrah, the, the spicy fruitiness of a Syrah along with a cat. Um, well, more like a cab. It's a cousin, actually, to the Cabernet. So in the mid-palate, back-palate, you start getting a little of that Cabernet flavor, the herbaceousness kind of coming through eucalyptus that the cab carries. And then up front, though, you get a lot of heavy, dark cherry, dark cranberry fruits with a lot of uh, body and spiciness. At the tasting last night, the people were noting on the combination, how you your nose gets bombarded with that dark ripe fruits almost like cursed cherries and blackberries and then as you swallow it in the mid palate then you start getting that a little just the subtleness of that cabernet characteristics that they like the two combined 
So that's why we were sticking with the Carmenere and adding more. It likes this cooler climate also. It was one of the five Bordeaux grapes, but Phylloxera killed it. Killed it because it was it didn't graft well with the rootstocks at the time, and so a lot of cuttings went to Chile and Argentina, thinking they were Merlot, and actually it was Carmenere, which was a lifesaver for that variety. So. Now they're growing it here, we are anyway, and there's some in Washington State, I think a vineyard has some uh, Carmenere up there. I don't know if they're producing. They had some Toucan wine they, they had, but I haven't seen any since, so I don't know if they're still doing Carmenere, but it's, it loves this area with the bright sunny days, the cool breezes, and we get more fruits and cherries out of it than you would of the herbaceousness and the greenness that you would get from the Chilean and Argentina wines. So I have to ask this because I've, I'm obsessed with Georgian varietals. Is there any plans for anybody to plant any Georgian varietals up here? Because this seems like it would be perfect for Saparavi and some of the Georgian wine. The closest that we've gotten to that has been a Gruner Veltliner. We're trying that. That's an Austrian grape that does real well. It, it's, it's, it's like a Riesling in these cooler climates. You get good acid. We don't know what kind of fruit characteristic because most of the GVs, you you get from Austria are, are kind of high acid. Yeah, it almost overwhelms the fruit, and they're very, very stark. Yeah, stark and high acids, and I think here we can bring more fruit forward along with good acid, just like this one has a nice citrus finish to it. Yeah, this is beautiful. This is also going to be extremely food-friendly. Oh, very food-friendly. We've been pairing it, the wife and I, with different forms of food to see which ones it goes well with, and we found that, of course, seafood's shrimp and we've had scallops and we've had uh, the salmon, uh, salmon. yeah oh we had yeah the, this was salmon would be beautiful yeah it's it carries through the heaviness oiliness of the salmon real well with that acid in the tail end and then we've used it also with uh, the fowl it goes well with turkey chicken even pork it it mm. handles real well as a white wine it, it goes nice with a, a loin a pork loin a roasted pork loin and roasted duck is real well because it, again, can cut through that oiliness, the fat of the duck, that uh, oh, some some of the wines can't. This just is so nice with that. Cheeses, of course, you'll be able to try some cheeses here. We've got, you can try it with. Yeah, see what it, how it works for your palate with that. We have pear and apple here. You can try it. And then we have some crackers. And you can try it with some creamy brie cheese. Hmm. Uh, according to um, Francis Robinson here, which I got the book in front of me because... I don't leave home without it, apparently. It's most common and successful in England, mm-hmm. um, even though it was originally right, right. developed in Germany. I think primarily the part that works so well for England is they have the cool climate, like Germany, and they also have the moisture. They have a lot of high humidity there, and the, the phoenix does well, see, for mild moldu- mold and mildews and, and the black rots. Um, it's, it's really resistant to those. And so it's easier to, to manage in a vineyard. I think that's why England likes it so well. Makes a lot of sense. I've not, I've actually never had any wine from England, surprisingly. I've been trying to find, because I know they also do a sparkling Sauvignon Blanc mm-hmm. um, from I think one of the vineyards that's there. That's their number two most planted of Sauvignon. I think there. it's that. And then their third is a, a particular strain of Pinot known as like Waltham's Pinot or something. Yeah, yeah. That's that's an interesting one. There's a gentleman in California that has a vineyard, but I've been unsuccessful in securing any cuttings from him. <laughs> We've tried two or three times, and every time he, he's been politely refusing to let loose of any cuttings, but I'd love <laughs> to try it here in this climate just to see how it would add to our clone diversity. We have a, a, a diverse selection of clones based on our schooling and experience in California. We have uh, the Pomard clone, the 667 now, the 115, the 777, the 828, and the Martini. So the nice thing about the this Martini clone? Martini clone, yeah, they're heritage clone. Oh. And um, yeah, we, we it does a nice job. It, it, it produces a Pinot, a big full Pinot with uh, the strawberry jam kind of characteristics. And so that gives us another component to our wine with the 828 being more cherry fruit driven and the strawberry cherry combo, blackberries out of the 777 and the earthiness from the 115 and the pomard with 667 blending those together. Why, well, I, I think we're gonna have some really complex and 
full spectrum wines off the Pinot. Well, the Pinot that from the last vintage that was bottled, I liked it. Everyone I poured the bottle for liked it. My boss, who is Jason from Passion, who is obsessed or has been obsessed historically with Pinot Noir, also loved it. So it's definitely one of the best Pinots I've had, period. I've generally not been fond of most American Pinot Noir. It's just it feels too overextracted, too bold, not as subtle and as fun not as the, the Burgundian. Not the finesse in there. And, the, and uh, yours totally had that, which shocked me. Well, that's the that's the uh, style I told you I had to eat my hat. That's why I have a new hat now. <laughs> yeah, there you go. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we we strive for a Burgundian style Pinot, uh, based on your information too. I think that we're the terroir here is really good for it because of the the soils we have the the redder clay soils that the Burgundy region has, along with the ash from the volcanic ash in this. You said this was an ancient lake bed with volcanic activity, and you can see that from the cinder cone peaks out here that we have all around the house. And with that ash, it's porous that we get good drainage, you know, but we still get the minerality driven out of the soil. Pino has a tendency, you know, to re-pick up the terroir that it's it growing in and reflect it. And I think that's why when we were producing some small batches ourselves before the vines actually got big enough for a commercial release, I also would indicate to the wife that this doesn't remind me of any of our California or Oregon Pinots that we'd ever tasted. I said, it reminds me more of an old world, you know, French Pinot or even a New Zealand. They have soils with a lot of volcanic in it too that is a style. I've New Zealand Pinot. We've had the two paddocks Pinots and they're they're really similar to the, the Burgundian style Pinots. More finance, more food driven wines uh, than California, because of Napa being so close to Sonoma, and Sonoma trying to compete with Napa, they have a tendency, like you're saying, they're trying to carry their wines along with Oregon into the 24, 25 bricks, heavy extraction, and you end up with big, heavy, big Pinot Noirs that are 14 15% alcohol. And it's just not what Pinot is really intended to be. It's more like we do, a 13% alcohol yeah. wine, more food friendly, something that will carry across the spectrum between the white meats and, and the light, the porks and stuff, the fowl. Uh, more where the the Cabernet is, as you know, is more for heavy roasted meat. Yeah. Uh, and Cab or Tanat. Yeah, Tanat. Oh, man, that's really got the tannins in it, too. Oh, I love Tanat. They are, if you get one where the tannins are starting to ripen together, you know, boy, that is a lovely wine, isn't it? I had a, a French Tanat about a year ago, and that was so tannic. Even it was in 2003, too, and it was still so tannic. It was like drinking a Greek coffee that had... <laughs> Raspberry and cherry fruit syrup. Essence, yeah. <laughs> and it was just an like almost grainy. It's like, gosh, I feel like I'm going to get a caffeine fix from this wine. It's great. <laughs> and the tanats that I've had from Arizona, they're not as tannic, but they're more tannic than their equivalents in Uruguay, which is, they're, they're nice. I like Arizona tanats. This should be a good place for it. The Petite Syrah and Tanat both should do good here. I haven't had very many Arizona Petite Syrahs. The few I've had have been also super tank, super bold, super big. Again, the I missed Callions tonight that go out, that swept away all of the metals at the festival at the farm, unfortunately. But every Tanat I've had in Arizona has been good, and we should get more planted. Clearly, I won't do as well, I think, here in Chino. It's, I, it's too I, cold. That's why we're we're thinking it's a little too cold to to bring out the the bold fruits that you would want in a in a Tanat or a Petite Syrah. Uh, if you want tannins up here, you're gonna have to go. You're gonna have to go Saparavi, I think. That might be, yeah, that might be an option there. Um, we're we're kind of interested uh, when uh, the uh, Blue Collar Vineyard comes in with their Tereldigo. Oh yeah. Uh, from what I've been able to read, uh, the Tereldigos in that Algeo Alto area, you know, I could say at the foot of the Alps. They seem to be big, bold, and fairly tannic. Uh, Toraldigo is actually one of the, is a varietal I've never had, I've had no experience with whatsoever. I've been on the hunt for it for a while, but I haven't had any luck finding one. Um, it's a gaping hole in my knowledge I need to know, of course. The only way to know these things is to drink them. It's one thing to read about a grape, and another to actually experience it. Yeah, the flavor profiles, yeah. The... Um, we're kind of interested to see what um, 
we've been finding that the Italian, like the, the Friuliano that they're growing in the Verbola Gala, um, you get it from the Italian wine side, and they have a tendency to be a lot like the German. They, they for years and years, they picked the fruit well, on a high acid level, so you ended up with a pretty austere. Most of the, the Italian varietals are austere, kind of high acid, low fruit profile. Uh, some more minerality will show through. So here, with the more sun and, and uh, the, the good, richer soils, I think that you'll be able to have a little more fruit balance in with the acids and the minerality on these Italian, especially your, the ones that they're growing in uh, the northern Italy. And we were excited, again, to see what that Tanat or the Tereldigo will do with this kind of climate and do a, a barrel-fermented, take it on the, the order of a, Mer a Merlot or a or That'd a pizza raw, just to see how big so it are can they, be. So are you going to be harvesting from them as well, combining your fruit with those? Yeah, or? that's, I think, and they are ultimately wanting to do a winery down the road, I believe, but right now, I think the first two or three years until they get the vineyard up and rolling, they have five acres uh, planned in there, at theirs also. So in, until such time, I'm hopeful that they'll be wanting to let us express the wine she's a good winemaker also so and she's also does lab work here at the prescott hospital so oh, nice. she has a good good history on how to the microorganisms and and the yeast and stuff like that so she's going to be an asset for us also when it comes time to make wine so is the eventual plan for del rio to or one of the eventual plans rather to actually put a winery production site up here yes yeah we We've got enough room here probably to do up to a two twenty five hundred case building right out here that's already has water, it has the septic and sewer system, so we have all that. It's six inch walls, double hung windows, so it's highly insulated, cool, be an ideal one for us for I think ten ten or twelve acres of fruit we can handle through that building all right. And then come up with an off site tasting room because we're kinda out of the way in the country out here. And I think we're looking at a tasting room somewhere where there has good traffic, whether it's in Sedona or Prescott or maybe Scottsdale. Prescott is where I think, and this is just my opinion, uh, where it should go because I really feel like Prescott, it has the strong beer culture, has the strong whiskey culture. It's starting to get a wine culture now thanks to superstition metering. Because okay. along with the mead there, which is very unusual and novel and delicious, they are also starting to serve Arizona wines. I know the uh, the Pinot was served there for a time. Yeah, they had our Pinot there for, I think they had a case they tried and was selling it by the glass. Yeah, we had uh, also some there at the uh, Plaza Liquor mm -hmm. store there. Um, he likes Pinot Noir, so we had ours there, a case also. Uh, it sold out real well. The people were happy with it. We just... Unfortunately, didn't have. We're already out of the 2013, and so we had. To, we're really excited about the 2014 now because we have a big enough harvest last year that we can offer enough. We we should have over 100 cases this year. Of the, oh, nice! Of the entry level, we call it, and we had eight barrels, and out of that eight barrels, there, Mark said there was two outstanding barrels that we should blend together and age it another four months and do it as a as a some kind of a reserve wine with 16 months barrel age. So we're gonna proceed that way. So we'll have 125, 150 cases of the entry level regular Pinot, and then we're hoping to have about 50 cases of the, the reserve Pinot then. That'll be fantastic. Be interesting to see the difference. That reserve um, incidentally was our, our best block with the pomard and the 115, the triple seven. Which, which answers another question I was going to ask of which of the Pinot clones do you think is doing best here? Um, well, they all have their attributes. Um, the triple seven, 115, pomard is a little later bud break than the 828. Um, but the 828, we like it because it has such a vertical upright growth habit. Uh, just well-mannered in that respect. Uh, we, it's a little early on. Uh, this will be the first year for the Martini clone that we have, uh, but it seems to be going fairly upright, uh, so it'd be interesting to see how it performs over the next two or three years, but probably 
myself, I, I, I love the flavor profile of the 115. Um, it, that, that to me gives it that leatheriness, the forest floors, though pomard gives you the darker color and the darker, deeper fruit. Triple seven is a lighter fruit, um, more like a raspberry or a dark cherry. 828 is definitely like a tart pie cherry. It's more fruit, fruit driven, and that's why we have more of that planted than the other clones. So it'll balance. We, we like to have a good fruit up front, but then a nice mid palate and back finish with the, the earthiness and the mushroomy, the leatheriness that I like of the French burgundies. Yeah, and those are the one the pinots, like I said, that I'm more fond of than than most of the Californias. And we're not looking at the high extraction. We do some skin contact pre and post fermentation. We try to do four or five days pre, and then a week to ten days post, lightly pressing, then to try to get all the color we can out of it. But pinot, it's a it's a delicate color. It's not unless you do the California high extracted, cold soak post fermentation for. 20 days, you know, some of them will do it even 26 days, so the skins are basically deteriorated, but you just have too big, too heavy extracted, they're starting yeah. to get hot wines because they're so high in alcohol. Um, I think they're moving away and losing their, the sight of what kind of wines you could grow there. They started that way when, you know, Louis and Martin had uh, nice Pinot Noirs, nice, even his cabs were real nice and approachable, but the whole industry in California has started to compete with Napa and Sonoma as who's got the best, biggest, boldest wine now. And, yeah. and Pino is, they're taking it right to the limit. And I think in California and even Oregon is trying to do heavy extracted big bomb wines. Of course, part of the problem, or part of the cause of that from what I've been researching is that Everyone's chasing point scores. I'm kind of of the whose line is it anyway idea of point scales where the points are all made up and nothing really matters. And really, when you think about it, this point scale is geared towards about maybe 20 people in the world who are rating these wines, and it's their palate specifically. So, for instance, my palate is different from your palate. It's going to be different from your wife's palate. It's going to be different from Robert Parker's palate. And everyone's chasing Parker because he likes that big, bold, extracted fruit. And That's where, I, you know, people have said, why don't you send some of this Bino in, you know, for competition, but... We're producing a style that's more Burgundian that, uh, for instance, somebody like Parker would, would give it a light, I think a light Pinot or a medium Pinot at the most because they're used to the big, heavy extracted, you know, lots of nose, of vibrant Pinots. So you come in with a sophisticated, uh, finesse type Pinot that the Burgundian styles, it won't be as well received from Parker as yeah. it would be an Oregon or a California style now. Yeah, and, and I just, when I review wines, you know, you've, you've read my review of the, the Pinot. Uh, I don't do point scores. I don't like doing point scores because I like to let the wine speak for itself. Because if I just describe what I'm tasting, describe how I feel it tastes, describe my general impressions, someone will look at that and be either go, oh, this sounds like it's going to fit my palate perfectly, I need to find this, or I don't know that this is going to fit my palate. I should see what else he's looked at. Mm -hmm. And I think that's the way it should be. Because wine is inherently subjective. Very subjective, yes. Um, to try and quantify something I think is that can't be quantified is... It's almost like what I left behind at seminary when I was there. It's trying to quantify the unquantifiable. Absolutely. And in the end, you're just left with a really big headache going, Oh, what did I do last night? <laughs> Yeah, we're, we're going to stay on this course. This is the style of Pinot Noir that I prefer. Actually, when I first started drinking the red wines, that was more of the wine styles I liked was the, the French style of uh, Pinot Noir. And at the time, California still made some lower alcohol, you know, the 13, 13.5 Pinots. Uh, but then in the last 10 years now, they've... They've kind of evolved into a bigger and heavier and fuller wine and more old, more post-soaking, you know, to get the extraction of every bit of flavor they can. Of course, with a gas chromatogram, you know, you can work your clones together when you find a wine that is real successful. Then all you have to do is start blending your clones to continue that flavor year after year. So it's easy when you find the following, then you can keep them there with. But in our case, we're 
we're going to let the nature handle the styles of wines and not worry about trying to blend for a consistent taste year in year out because we are products of the earth you know and so that's the kind of way we want our wine to be some years are going to be fuller and bigger than other years just because of the growing conditions and the amount of moisture we have so i, I think we'll just let the wine like i say you, you can't beat good fruit in the vineyard to produce great wine all you're doing is just letting the wine express itself in the vineyard so or vin, in the winery so that's that's kind of our philosophy is just to let the wine express itself and and enjoy that for what it is is where it's grown and what it'll produce which is again very one of the reasons why i'm very fond of arizona wines is because we let the land speak we don't try to smother that voice like what i feel a lot of california does yes um Oregon lets it out a little bit sometimes, same with Washington, but they're starting to move away from that too. Absolutely, they're all heading that same direction. It's, it seems to be market-driven more than winery and style-driven. Um, it's whatever Napa is hot with, we got to counter it with our Pinot. And that just seems to be what's going on now. And of course, Pinot influences Oregon and Washington right down the line, yeah. as does Napa for Washington's Cabernets and stuff too. They're pushing for bigger, bolder Cabernets in Washington now also. So where, if someone's looking for a bottle of the Phoenix, where are they going to find it? Um, we have it at Art of the Wine at this point. Um, that's uh, downtown Sedona, down, right? Yeah, down in Sedona. And uh, that's it right now because we only have 23 cases. We, um, we've approached a couple local uh, establishments here in the Prescott Prescott Valley area and we'll we'll know more about that in the next couple of days or we left some bottles for them to sample of the Phoenix and they seem excited so we'll see um, if they are uh, we have to kind of balance the amount of wine we have yeah. so that we don't run out in the first week but hey, yeah that would be yeah we want to get in and two or three select places where we can at least have enough for six or eight months worth of wine before we run out That'll get us closer to the, the next batch of uh, Phoenix. So that's, we're hoping as we, as the vineyard gets mature, uh, we keep adding and doubling our plantings every year. Why we, in another two or three years, we should be up to where now we can have several outlets because we'll be at a hundred plus cases of everything. So that's kind of our so right, Then you goal. can start selling at the Artist tasting facilities in Scottsdale. And that's one thing that we would like to do because um, they, Eridus has a style profile that they like. Uh, of course, it's again with their California winemaker. That's what we like too. So our styles, stylistically, are, are similar, letting the grape express itself. And with the unique grapes that we have, being the Carmenere and the Pinot and the, the Phoenix, and next this fall coming up will be our Vignole. Um, we won't be actually competing. We'll be complementing more. So that's, to us, is the, the nice attraction we have for something in the Scottsdale area would be that we are complimenting someone that's already there. Speaking of vignoles, we should probably bring that over. Okay. So a friend of mine who runs actually a wine blog focusing on Missouri and Kansas and Nebraska wines in the Midwest, sort of where you started, mm -hmm. um, called the Sheaf and Vine. Okay. Uh, she and I have been doing wine trades for about a year now. And I specifically asked her to find me a, a good semi-dry to dry vignoles because I know that last time I hung out with you guys, this is what we were you were thinking of doing with this grape. I had her get this with you specifically in mind, actually. So anyway, she sent this over. It's coming from somewhere in Missouri near the Ozarks. Okay. Um, so we've got a Missouri vignoles here, so it's a little bit, you know, offbeat, I assume. I mean, I've... I had a, a Vignoles from Stonehill mm -hmm. that was a sweet dessert. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Uh, late harvest. So this is semi-dry. Okay. I've not had this yet, so I have no idea. So this will be your first harvest of Vignoles this yes. year. Yes, this will be the first one this fall. So Vignoles is another hybrid. Um, I think it's Viognier and something else. Well, obviously it's a hybrid of Viognier and something else. Mm -hmm. Or something else. And Something vinifera and something not. 
Oh, Subro and Pinot Noir. Mm-hmm. Hybrid. Yeah. That's why we have the tight clusters, uh, and it gets the thicker skin from the Subro that, and and also the heavy fruitiness. And getting us this one definitely has a more floral quality than the Phoenix. Mm-hmm. A sort of acacia lily on yeah. the nose, and then there's pineapple. Yeah, very heavy with the pineapple. And that's one of the traits that's nice about the Vignole, especially for late harvest, is the peach, apricot, pineapple notes that will come out in that wine. That's kind of why we're, we're thinking that uh, to kind of give us a, a good spread of our wines, we'll have the two reds that are dry, the dry Phoenix, and then a sweet white in the Vignole, so that we can cover as far as the the people out there that like a full spectrum of wines will be able to have that sweeter uh, offering for them than this hopefully in like maybe around Christmas this year it doesn't take very long to do a sweet wine and that's kind of what we're hoping to do is have something just before Christmas yeah um, we did the late harvest uh, Verdelu at Passion and I think all it took us really to make it was about six months. Mm-hmm. And the, we left it sit in the tank and age for a while after that, but you know, we could have bottled it right then and there. And it's also been really interesting to watch that develop over the last couple of months because it's gotten more and more complex and everything. And I feel like Vignoles would probably develop the same way, but I don't have that much experience with it, admittedly. I had uh, the first experience was back when we had the, the winery in Iowa, I went to Michigan up at the Finn Valley Winery. Mm-hmm. And he said, you've got to try this. We just, just, just planted some. We've only got 500 vines in the ground at the time. And he said, it's a, it's a late harvest dessert wine. And it's called Vignole. And after the wine we closed for the night, then he took us over to his house and pulled out a couple half bottles of the, of the late harvest Vignole. And I was just blown away. It had the, the oiliness like a, of a simian, you know, the good mouth characteristics oh, yeah. of the simian. But it had just a ton of pineapple and peach apricot uh, on the nose and in the flavor. Very thick and viscous as for a late harvest, but not cloying. You know, just it had a good acid behind it to help clean out the palate. But it was a super grape, and I've never been able to forget about that until we talked, you know, last year on it. And, and uh, so I thought, well, let me let me just see. We've got a little patch I was experimenting with. Primarily because it's a very late butter. It's probably later than most vinifera even. Um, when we had uh, the Carmenere is late, the Vignole was probably 10, 12 days behind that oh, when wow. it come to bud break, yeah. And it's something you could just about put in a frost zone and be not have to worry about it, um, having trouble with spring frost because it buds out so late. And it's so hardy. Uh, the thick skin is good. We don't have the moisture here, but it does well in the Midwest where they have more humidity and rain because that thick skin more resistant to the molds and the rots. So, and it takes on a botrytis well too. Uh, we don't have that here; it's too dry. But I think we can do a select late harvest and and kind of uh, accentuate the pineapple, pe- peach, apricotty noses of it. Yeah, this one's got the super pineapple note. Very pineapple is. And this it's is also just, got some residual sugar too. I mean, this is yeah, sweet. So. And that's what we're thinking about doing is trying to get the bricks at around 23 bricks, and then arrest it so that we'll end up with maybe seven or eight uh, percent uh, residual sugar and about eight, eight and a half, nine percent alcohol. So it'll be a, a real nice Why so low f- for the start bricks? Because the late harvest that uh, I know Pillsbury did and Sweet Life Symphony, that was at 30 bricks. Yeah, it'll take it up. Uh, I don't know about 30 here in this climate because we don't have the heat. Mm, yes. Uh, and I forget about that. Yeah, I mean, that's it. So and used to the birdies, so used right. to Wilcox. That, that it's just like, really, 25 bricks? That seems so low. That's like when we <laughs> that's when we harvest for our dry wines. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. It, it, we do dry wines here, like this one here is 12.8 on the Phoenix. Well, this one. Um, and so I think the Vignole will try to use it and just stop the fermentation at about 8 or 9% alcohol and then have a nice residual sugar to balance all that fruit. I think it's going to be real nice. We'll, we'll monitor it as we ferment and see where we think it's the right balance between alcohol and the sweetness so that we can finish it up quick. And We're trying to get something into the marketplace that before Christmas, so 
I think it'll be a good Christmas present wine for people here with that late harvest vignette. Now, I know some Sauternes-style wines are aged on oak. Would you consider that for a vignettes? Like Maybe on a neutral oak, you know, to get more viscosity out of it by evaporation through the wood. Help concentrate your flavors. I'm not real sure if that would also give you more of candied fruit, you know. It'd be, it'd be like drying the grapes before you fermented it, you know, like they do in Italy. But a neutral oak might be the way to do it, too. To, we had one friend at, uh, in Iowa went down to Missouri to Mount Pleasant Winery. And they were able to get us a bottle of Estate Vignole, which was totally dry barrel fermented. Oh, nice. What a nice, nice wine. I mean, it was, it had the fruitiness of a Viognier type fruitiness, but it had the complexity of the Chardonnay from the oak fermentation and malolactic, and it was bone dry, and it had been in the neutral oak after fermentation. They did maturization for about four months and then bottled her up and it was a very nice wine. It was a nice vignole, uh, dry vignole estate. So um, I think it can go both ways. You'd have to just, based on where, where we're at and what kind of flavor profile this would give, we think to start with, we will do, and, and the scarcity, we don't have a lot, but it'd be better to do a sweet one first and, and then kind of experiment. If it works well, we might add more vines. And that was one of the options also in the bottom where it's a little more frost prone is because it buds out so late, uh, it might be an option for a, a dry uh, estate vignole too. You could do a dry and a sweet too. Yeah, we could keep the patch up on the hill here on the bench, let it be our sweet, and then put maybe seven, eight hundred down at the bottom there to fill that out, and, and that'd give us a couple barrels. And we could do a barrel ferment, barrel aged in uh, French oak, and just see what the potential would be of a dry vignole be interesting. So along with the dry vignoles coming out and the bottling of the Carmenere and the Pinot Noirs that are coming out, what are the long-term future plans for Del Rio Springs? If um, you care to share any of that. We don't have really long-term. Our mid-terms is to you know get the rest of the ground planted and then look at the winery. We've got to kind of blend that planning with getting the winery ready. It's a long ways to clear down to Wilcox, and they do a, a style that we really like, which is similar to our style of wine, so we'll continue to go there until such time that we put the winery up here. But when we do that, we need to, like you say, try to do a dual venture maybe with our heritage down there in Scottsdale, maybe work out an agreement where we can share the facility with them and carry our wine, and like I say, it complements their wines, or maybe Sedona, we don't know, or Prescott, I don't know the culture of Prescott, like you say, being more whiskey, beer, and cowboy hats. I'm not sure if they're if it would work out for us to have a tasting room there. Well, here's the thing. You know, it's they're starting to be a wine culture in Prescott now. I mean, Plaza Liquor is intensely popular. They've got a huge wine selection with weird wines from all over the world, and there's a market for that now. And so I would like to see more tasting rooms there, because also it would give me something to do after church when I go to Prescott. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's like, okay, I go to church, then what am I going to do? Oh, I'm going to get the tasting rooms. <laughs> and then and then head back to Jerome. <laughs> <laughs> so maybe we should think of... Yeah, maybe <laughs> just just have a home for Cody then on Sundays. There we go. <laughs> yeah, yeah I, we see a lot of people around there. It's just trying to to find a place, and it had to be in the square, I think. Yeah, the square is really the only place you could do it. The yeah, space if you're there off is a, be... Yeah, if you're off a block, you're out of it totally. I mean, people just won't walk. That's the thing with Sedona. We've looked at properties over there, and they're available and the prices aren't bad but they're like a block block and a half off the main line and that's just enough that people don't do it people won't go there this is something i've seen in jerome everyone goes on main street and we're tucked away in a corner of hall avenue we still get a lot of foot traffic but not nearly as much as right and a tasting room you really need the traffic through there to to make it work because of the your rental fees utilities everything really adds up so you have to have the volume sales and speaking of volume sales, we have to have the volume to be able to have enough wine that we could stay open, you know, year-round also. So we're ramping up for that. That's kind of in our mid to long-range goal is where would we do a tasting room and how many cases a year would we need to of each one of these wines, at least four, you know, so we would be able to have a good, like I say, a good spread of dry, red, white, and sweet and white 
to meet the palates of most people coming through. Now, on that note, um, speaking of dry reds and whites and the sweet white, any plans for making rosés in the future? Because um, there are some pretty good Pinot Noir rosés coming out of the Willamette Valley that I've been seeing. Like very that. nice. Uh, we've had some nice, uh, they've had ripe raspberries and that uh, Pinot Noir rosés. Um, we just don't know how Pinot Noir rosé would work in a, in a tasting room, maybe where you're tasting it. It might be something that the people, you know, would the distributor that we have says that if it's a rosé on the shelf, people really don't pick rosés off the shelf as much as a white or a red. Um, I think they're not as success, successful, he said. So that's kind of the been The problem our, is with that is everyone assumes that all rosé, or a lot of people assume, that all rosé equals white zing, and there's this big stigma against that. But I've noticed that has been lifting, starting to lift lately. Oh. I've had people starting to ask me about rosés. Of course, I'm a huge fan of rosés. I think that they would be should be an essential part of Arizona wine culture because it gets hot. You want to have something that has some tannins and is still very food-friendly, mm -hmm. but maybe you're not as fond of the whites or maybe you want some variation. A rosé is a perfect thing for that hot Arizona summer. Sure. And you want some of the components of a red, but you like the lightness of the whites, so that would be what a rosé would just about catch both of those. I just don't know. Most rosés uh, are all off dry to semi-sweet. The rosés I liked was the French uh, Anjou's, the, the rosés they produced were dry. And There's a great Anjou rosé actually at Puzzle for Deli right now. I've, I've had that one. It's great. I liked it. I, did, I liked the shape of the bottle too. It had yeah. the tall German clear hot bottle and that pale pink rosé and it really looked nice. Uh, it made a nice offering as far as for eye appeal and the wines I like. We had a nice dry Grenache rosé that Eridus is making. Yeah, I, I tasted that when I was down at Wilcox last week and I also tasted the uh, Grenache rosé from Deep Sky that was also great too. Deep Sky Arizona produces great dry rosé. I think they probably could here I, again because even though they're warmer they're dry too and that that's a beauty thing about being in this drier climate compared to even California they have more humidity and uh, I think that's one of the pluses that we have is that it's able to let that fruit carry through and you can like you say you can get longer hang times here too even though it's warmer uh, if you manage the canopy with some leaf cover uh, like for us now we'll try to do leaf thinning on the east side of the the vines for as soon as we get into the verasion and then we just leave it there so that the afternoon sun is sheltered from the with the leaves and then about 10 days before we harvest we'll pull leaves on both sides and let the sun mature both sides of the cluster then but it gives us that opportunity to keep the hot part off so we don't end up with the stewed cooked fruit type flavors we get more of the fresh cherry flavors rather than a cherry compote or something like that we end up with a bright cherry flavors nice bright fresh raspberry strawberry um, I think that's a lot in the canopy management that helps with that fruit maintain that fruit even though we have this good direct sun up at this elevation I think this will be what will work nice for the Vignole. We'll know this year, this fall. Yeah, I, I'm really looking forward to that. We're excited to try it. Because that will be, to my knowledge, also the very first Arizona Vignoles, too. I think it probably will be. I, I heard a rumor that there was someone growing it up in the White Mountains, but they just planted it. Yeah, so. somebody is up there, I think, growing Vidal up there, too. That's what I heard, too. Uh, Vidal and Vignoles. And Vignoles. Some red, I can't remember Some, for like Well, Vidal and Vignole would do good, uh, even more so than a Saval, because the Vidal, again, has the tough skin. Yeah. Uh, it's, you could make a wonderful ice wine off of Vidal also. They do a lot of that in Canada. I had a Vidal ice wine, actually. It was very interesting. Um, and then I had a bone-dry Vidal from uh, Spoon Pillar in Missouri. Okay. The funny thing is, I think up there, and also the vineyard in Williams, that I guess they're going to be getting their first harvest this year. I don't know really anything about them either. Is that theoretically you could do an ice wine up there, and that's going to be interesting. Definitely, I I, I don't. And really it'd be know worth it just for the sheer amusement. It's like, oh, here's our ice wine. You're in Arizona. How did you get an ice wine? Because everyone assumes again that Arizona is all Phoenix. So. Yeah, we looked at 
you know, when we were trying to locate here uh, and find a vineyard spot, we we looked at Williams. The only thing that kept us from going there was it's a little too cold in the winter and a little too wet. Yeah, uh, it needed more of your your French hybrids, a Cavadal and Vignole. Uh, I think the Phoenix would do good up there uh, with thicker skin and, and a more cold tolerant. I think it'd probably do okay up there. It'd be interesting to see what kind of fruit profile you would get from that Williams area where it's really cool up there. But that was the reason we didn't locate up there. There were some beautiful spots along the interstate there, as Wagon Wheel has. Uh, I still haven't been up there yet, mostly because I have no way of contacting them. I've been trying to find an email address for them for Well, they ran into some situations over trying to get the, the winery to be able to sell to the public. I think that was another situation that we had to ante- anticipate when we were locating too, is they're up there in that Coconino uh, National Forest, so they have some rules and regulations the National Forest has regarding alcoholic beverages in the National Forest land, uh, selling it to the public. I think the county has some, it's a new venture up there in Coconino County too, and they're trying to figure out what's the best for them uh, going forward also, so um, it's good that they're, they're, they're actually going to be laying the groundwork for future wineries up there, that wagon wheel. Well, gang, we're going to keep on sipping our Vignoles and our Phoenix. Until next time, this has been Cody, Arizona Wine Monk, hanging out with uh, Rick over here at Del Rio Springs, and your wife has disappeared. Just disappeared. Until next time, everybody, this is Cody and Rick, and we are signing off. Until next time.